Hey everyone, thanks for joining us. This is the Anesthesia Learn on the Go podcast series from the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology. In these episodes, we will provide a high-yield clinical review of some of the common topics encountered by anesthesiologists at all levels. The following episode will be recorded by a member of our department at UK. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram at UK Anesthesia and subscribe to the University of Kentucky Department of Anesthesiology YouTube channel for our videocast. Now fire up your headphones, relax, and let's talk anesthesia. Hello, this is Annette Rebel from the University of Kentucky, and today we will talk about trauma management. Trauma Red, coming up to your room. So this podcast is about what to consider when you will be taking care of a direct admission of a trauma patient coming up from the emergency room directly to your operating room. Anticipation helps a lot to minimize the panic factor in this situation. In this podcast, I will refer to some national guidelines and describe a relatively general approach to care of that patient. However, some of those details are very much determined by our institutional approach. So therefore, as system-based practice, you may have to modify some of the details based on your institutional practice. So here at the University of Kentucky, anesthesia providers carry the trauma pager. And we respond to trauma alert red pages. The page will tell you about the arrival time of your patient, ETA five to 15 minutes. It will tell you about arrival location in which ED bed the patient will be admitted to. And then, if you're lucky enough, you also may get some information about trauma mechanism, meaning MVC, gunshot wound, stab, fall, hypotensive, GCS, etc. Trauma alert red means that based on the pre-hospital information, the patient may require immediate attention. The criteria for trauma red are either hypotension, systolic blood pressure less than 90, penetrating injury mechanism to neck, thorax, or abdomen. It may be a pulsex extremity. It may be GCS less than eight after trauma, or that the patient is currently receiving blood products during the transport. Those criteria have been defined by our trauma service. So if we receive that page, we report to the emergency room. And when I say me, that means the anesthesia attending, an anesthesia provider, which could be a resident or a CRNA, and an anesthesia technician. And patiently await the patient. The anesthesia technician brings a transport monitor just in case if you have to take this patient immediately upstairs to the operating room. When the patient arrives, in the, the trauma team conducts the first assessment, focusing on vital signs and injury status. At this stage, we pay attention to gauge the critical condition of the patient. In addition, I try to obtain some information about airway status, meaning conduct a quick assessment as you can, you know, answer the question, how difficult may it be to intubate this patient. And I also look for information for IV status. 
what do I have if I need to resuscitate this patient right away? The trauma or ED resident performs the FAST exam. Try to observe that because the subciphered view will show you some cardiac structures and you may get some information about volume status, contractility, and the presence or absence of pericardial fluid. If the patient is hypotensive and a FAST exam is positive, this means the patient should go directly to the operating room per ATLS guidelines. However, if the patient is somewhat stable or the FAST exam is negative, we may have more time or the need to get additional information about injury extent. So we will try to get this patient to the scanner. The anesthesia team goes with the patient. And until the red is released by the trauma attending or trauma chief, one anesthesia provider will stay with this patient. One word of caution. When we stay with the patient and the patient is still not declared a surgical patient, at this point we have a more observatory role, which means we are there to observe what's going on and to facilitate the assessment and therapy by the primary team, which at this point is the surgical team or the emergency room physicians. If the decision is made to go to the operating room by either the trauma surgeon attending or trauma chief, then the trauma team have to call the operating room and post the case. What are we planning to do? We are now taking a much more active part in the care of this patient. As soon as the decision is made, the anesthesia team splits up. The anesthesia attending or one provider stays with the patient and transfers the vital sign monitors and will transport this patient to the operating room as soon as possible. Make sure MTP is activated um, if indicated. Most likely it is indicated if a patient needs to go emergently to the operating room. The anesthesia resident or the other anesthesia provider goes immediately upstairs to the operating room you have to get medications from the pharmacy and open up the trauma room, meaning set everything up in the tracheal tube, medications, etc., cetera, uh, to receive this patient very shortly. The anesthesia technician also goes immediately upstairs to the trauma room and to set up requested equipment. You may need a glide scope. Make sure you get your arterial line set up. Set up a hotline. Uh, be prepared for large IV access placement. This could be a RIC, a rapid infusion catheter, and or center line placement, a HOG or MAG. Also prepare the resuscitation devices, level one, or perhaps the Belmont rapid infusion system. Um, your anesthesia attending or resident need to communicate all those needs to your anesthesia techs as early as possible to facilitate expedited setup. Since the anesthesia resident or provider has to sign out the medications for this patient from pharmacy, make your life easy and when you leave the emergency room, take a sticker with you um, so you have the patient information on you. If you work with me, 
my choices for medications are for non-intubated patients, 100 milligrams of ketamine, 250 micrograms of fentanyl, 5 milligrams of midazolam in saxonicoline and rocuronium ready to go. For intubated patients, we can streamline that medication list a little bit and we just sign out medications um, uh, focusing on maintenance, meaning fentanyl, rocuronium, and uh, the benzodiazepine of your choice. Some attendings may modify that, meaning you may have automated uh, ready to go. It is very, very rare that a trauma patient will receive proper fall. Most patients are in C-collar and have spine precautions since the spine has not been cleared yet. So anticipate a difficult airway and also think about rapid sequence induction um, because of the uncertainty of gastric volume. That does not mean that we use GlideScope for every intubation, but for sure it should be readily available in the trauma room. So before we get to the details of patient care and patient care flow, and before we transition into a very active role in the care of this trauma patient, let us just briefly review the core concepts of management of a trauma patient. According to the recent trauma literature, and I really recommend you would look up Tim Harris's publication, The Evolving Science of Trauma Resuscitation, published in Emergency Me uh, Medicine Clinic of North America, published in 2018. The key components of damage control resuscitation are control the hemorrhage, allow permissive hypotension by some hypovolemia, and prevent or correct trauma-related coagulopathy. Those three things. So for component one, control the hemorrhage. Key point, do not waste time with unnecessary things. Get this patient to the operating room. That is where you control the hemorrhage. If the patient is too unstable, is there something you can immediately do to control and decrease the blood loss, like a reboa? That's a procedure you can do in the emergency room bay and has some potential of uh, slowing down the bleeding. For the second point, allow lower blood pressures. While the American College of Surgeon guidelines state a systolic blood pressure of around 90 millimeter mercury uh, should be the target for trauma patients, optimal systolic blood pressures may depend on age and also by, on comorbidities, trauma pattern. According to a large retrospective study published in 2011, with TBI suspected or confirmed and age above 65 years old, we may want to be cautious and allow a little bit higher blood pressures, meaning more systolic blood pressure target above 100 to 105. For the third point, trauma-related coagulopathy, big question is like, when do we activate the massive transfusion protocol? According to American College of Surgeon guidelines, 
you may activate MTP if you either need to go perform immediate surgery needed to control bleeding, or if a patient is getting transfused in the trauma bay, or, and or, you have persistent hemodynamic instability despite fluid resuscitation. They also recommend that you can calculate the blood consumption score, which is conglomerate of hemodynamics, lab values, and trauma mechanism. Unfortunately, rarely you have all that information available immediately before you have to take this patient to the operating room. So back to the patient and to the patient care flow. So one anesthesia provider and the resident upstairs setting up the room. The anesthesia tech is also upstairs uh, setting up the equipment we need. And usually, I transport the patient to the operating room while the OR is getting set up. We do monitor vital signs during the transport unless it's absolutely indicated based on pathology, I transport the patient primarily using the pulse oximetry and not much else. My rationale for this is, A, I want to decrease the spaghetti factor. All lines will get tangled up and will make my life more difficult. B, I'd rather have one monitor which tells me what I need to know than having five monitors I just don't can pay attention to. C, if I transport a patient in hemorrhagic shock to a life-saving environment, which is the operating room, to stop the bleeding. There are really only two things which would make me stop. Respiratory arrest or cardiac arrest. Pulse oximetry will tell me both. At the arrival in the operating room, I transfer the pulse oximetry and the supplemental oxygen or positive pressure ventilation. The next step, I disconnect all the IVE lines from the emergency room. Again, also here, they're always tangled up. You don't know what goes where and which IVE is working or not. It's imperative that you re-ensure the patency and the adequacy of your IV access. So therefore, I transition everything away from the emergency room and connect to my lines, hotlines, etc. Then I move the patient. You need several people to do that because the patient still is on log roll precaution, meaning spines are not cleared. As soon as the patient is moved to the OR bed, I connect uh, further IV lines. Um, I attach all my full monitor set, EKG, blood pressure. Um, and if a patient is not already intubated, I pre-oxygenate. When you place your monitors, please keep in mind that the surgeon will prep very wide. So do not put your monitors where the surgeon will then uh, move them or request for you to move them because they are in his surgical field. If you have initial manpower available at this stage, it's nice as the patient is already moved in the operating room uh, bed and uh, getting prepped that one anesthesia provider can work on arterial line access or more IV access. Um, since you need this in the next step as soon as the airway is secured. The primary anesthesia provider gets ready for anesthesia induction, if not already intubated, and airway management, and then central line placement. 
The main focus of our patient care in the trauma room is to facilitate the surgeon's access to address the hemorrhage. Keep in mind that we don't heal the patient at this stage. The surgical intervention may. It is our responsibility to keep the patient alive until the surgeon has control over the bleeding. So focus not on delaying the surgical progress. When we place lines, don't delay the surgical approach. They need to prep the patient, and the trauma prep is pretty much from chin to pelvis. If we are placing a center line, what I do, I usually take the C collar off as soon as the airway is secured and the patient is paralyzed, and then secure the head with tape in midline. When I'm really concerned about C-spine injury, then I transition to a subclaving approach for line placement. After the patient is positioned for um, IG access, I do not use a stale drape. I use stale towels for draping to allow the surgical field to open up for the surgeon. By using the towels, you allow the surgeon to prep and to proceed with their procedure parallel to your line placement. At this point, if you have any concerns about sterility, that sterility may have been violated during the line placement or you just not adequately prepared the field, that's why those lines are called trauma lines. And they should be changed within 24 to 48 hours after the patient has arrived in the ICU and has been hemodynamically stabilized. The rest of the trauma management really depends on the pathology specifics. Let me reiterate, the goals of trauma care, systolic blood pressures, according to American Co College of Surgeons, is around 90 millimeter mercury. You may make some adjustments based on age, but baseline is 90 millimeter mercury is sufficient. Treat the trauma-associated coagulopathy. This is a dilutional and a consumptive coagulopathy. Can be a very complex pattern. So in addition to limit your crystalloid and the dilutional factor, if you can, meaning you have blood products available, also monitor your coagulation status by thromboelastogram, a tag. And that gives you more direction about targeting the coagulopathy. Try to maintain normothermia. Most of those trauma patients from the field already are life hypothermic. So if you have warming devices present, use them. If the patient is on a trauma blanket, on a warming blanket, use that. Keep the trauma room warm and the doors closed. Oxygenation, a PaO2 above 60 is sufficient, and ventilation, a PaCO2 of less than 50 also has been seen as sufficient based on trauma society guidelines. If you have any concerns about traumatic head injury, either suspected or confirmed, perfusion pressures may have to be adjusted to maintain a cranial perfusion pressure above 60, and you may need ICP monitoring to do that. This concludes my podcast. 
I hope this helps when you're taking care of a trauma patient. These are cases are still one of my favorite clinical experiences and I hope you enjoy them too and I hope I get to work with you. Thank you very much for your attention. Hey everyone, thanks so much for listening. We really hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have ideas for future podcasts, please reach out to us via email at learnonthego at uky.edu. Don't forget to follow us on our social media accounts as well on Instagram and Twitter, UK Anesthesia. From all of us at UK Department of Anesthesiology, have a great day.